0: Let's go ahead and read our scripture reading this morning. We're we'll going to read Galatians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Uh, because it is a longer passage, uh, I will read it as you follow along on the board. So It says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted also. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one must bear his own load. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, thus he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in, losing good, in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of the faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and in the words of that song, we sing that no one else can do what you do. No one else has offered their only son in full payment and satisfaction for our sins. No one else commands all the heavens and the earth. No one else is above all the universe. And though many may try, they have all failed. Many have tried. We have all tried to resist your kingdom. And yet, Lord, you have been so gracious to us to forgive us and to bring us back to yourself, to search us out so that me may know you. And so now, Lord, as we look at these passages that teach us how to live in light of our salvation, I pray that you will use them to change our hearts, change our motivations, our attitudes. Help us to know you more. Help us to delight in you, and not only in you, but to delight in your community of faith, in the covenant community, Lord. May, we be more, may church be more than just a place that we go to. May it, may it be something that we are committed to. Not because we want to save the church, but because we love you and the church is your bride. Lord, we pray all of this that you will be here with us this morning and that your spirit will Move us in accordance with your word. Open our ears. Give us, hearts to hear, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand, a will to obey. It is in your name we pray, amen. Well, uh, as you know, we just came through a very contentious election. And as you know, we have a new president sworn in. Uh, to the White House, uh, some of you may be happy about that. Some of you may not be so happy about that. But regardless of your political affiliations, I don't think any of us can deny the magnificent pageant and historical event that a presidential inauguration is. Can we all admit of that? I mean, I mean, if you think about it, what, what is Biden? Is he the 46th How, what, what president are we on? We're forty-six. So if you think about it, this is only the forty-sixth time this has happened in our nation's entire history. So so a very, very significant event in the life of our nation. And of course, no president's gonna give up the opportunity to have all cameras on him and all ears on him to, to say kind of a set a direction for his uh, for his administration. Now whether we give you know heed to that or not. I heard someone say one time that when you're a child, fairy tales begin with once upon a time. When you're an adult, fairy tales begin with if elected, I promise. But uh, regardless, um, I think I'm not wrong in saying that perhaps the most famous inauguration speech that has ever been given, I think you guys will agree with me on this, is the inauguratory address of John F. Kennedy. Is that that pretty fair to say? And in his inaugural address, he said a line that is so famous that it has become an Americanism, it has become a proverb in America, and you guys can probably guess what that is, can't you? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what? But what you can do for your country, that's right, that there is a kind of truth in that statement that is so universal, and to be honest with you, in our country, I think we need to pick up on that wisdom again. But I bring that up because we're not really here to talk about presidents, we're not really here to talk about elections, what we are here to talk about is because that idea is very similar to the passage that we're coming across in Galatians today. And so we could say it this way. We could say, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for the community of God. And so we're gonna see that emphasis in these passages. Now, Paul is at the end of his argument. This is the end of the main body of the book of Galatians. After this, we have some concluding thoughts, uh, some uh, some things he's going to say, just kind of to bring his letter to a close, that are not really related to the rest of the letter. In some ways they are, but in some ways they're not. And so, but the main gist, the main focus of his argument, everything we've been working toward, everything that we have studied from, when did we start Galatians? Was it back in November of last year? All the way to this point, we have come to this point, to the end of the main body of the book of Galatians. He has taken the Galatians to task for their leaving the gospel and being bewitched by false teachers. He has explained the gospel clearly. And now in Galatians 6, one through 10, the last instructions of his main body are given to the church. This is the end of everything. Everything. Chapter six, as I told you last week, is focused on the community. Chapter five, the practical section of chapter five is focused on walking in the spirit that you could call that the Holy Spirit section. And now the question is, what does that look like in the context of community? The spirit leads us, he builds us in Christ likeness, but he doesn't do it in a vacuum. He does it in a context and that context is community. And as we see here, we're gonna see that we saw last week how community functions in our lives, and our spiritual health, and our growth, what, what, what we get when we come to the church, what we get when we are part of a church, when we belong to a community of faith. But now the question is, what is my role? What do I do? What role do I play in the community and how do I invest in those with whom I am covenanted together with. And, I, and by the way, I hope you see the church that way. That we are a covenant community. That we are covenanted together to help one another and walk beside one another to become more like Jesus Christ. It's not just about attending service. You know, there are some churches out there that all they want to do is have worship services and that's it. And there are other churches that want to be the church. And I pray that we are the latter. I pray that we want to be the church, walking together, doing life together, sharing Christ's likeness with one another. And so I think the core of these verses, really going all the way back to chapter five, verse 13, but I think the core of these verses is found in verse nine, where he says here in verse nine, he says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. And when he says, do not lose heart here, I just want you to stop right there for a minute because I wanna talk about what this means. Uh, if you're using the English Standard Version, the, the version that Paul wrote, if you're using that version, it says, do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. Do not grow weary Do not grow slack. Don't lose your motivation. Don't become uninterested in the community. In other words, don't quit. Don't quit. In essence, Paul is calling us to be committed to the church, committed to the community of faith. Maintain our commitment, both to holiness in chapter 5, but also to the community of believers to the community of our people whom God has called us to covenant together with. Jesus makes it clear in several places throughout the New Testament. He makes it clear that what we do and how we respond to the community is how we respond to Christ himself. And by the way, that's not a New Testament idea. We also see that in the Old Testament. Remember when Achan stole the forbidden goods from Jericho? And that had an impact not only on him and his family, but that actually had an impact on all the nation of Israel so that they lost a battle that quite frankly should have been very easy to win. But God wasn't with them because there was sin in the camp. And so in the same way, Jesus says that what you do to the church, how you respond to the church, how committed you are to the church is not just to the church, but to Christ himself. You remember when Paul was on the Damascus Road, he was Saul at the time, and Jesus appeared in that bright light. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't say that, did he? What did he say? Why are you persecuting me? Right. You remember Jesus himself, he says that whatever you have done to the least of these my brothers, you have also done it to me. Peter, whenever Ananias and Sapphira had lied about what they had given to the church, Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to who? But to God, right? And guys, when we understand that, that means commitment to the church is a serious issue. It means it's a serious issue. It's not an exaggeration to say that how committed we are to Christ is measured by the extent to how committed we are to the church. Now, just to clarify, look at verse 10. What, what, who all are we to do good to? He says, so then, while we have op- opportunity, let us do good to all people. Yes, we are to do good to all people. And we're gonna talk more about that in just a second. But, but do good to all people. Just, just do good for the sake of doing good. Not for any reward, not for anything that we might get in return, but just do good. Just do good. You know, Um, and I mean, that's it. Just do good because it's good. He says, do it to all people. But then notice how he clarifies. He says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yes, we do good to all people, but the object of our affection is the church, at least in this sense. Now, the ultimate object of our affection is Christ himself, obviously, but in this sense, the, the, the special interest of our affection is the church. Let me give you an example of this. I, I just want you to know, I love all your kids. I, I love kids. I love their messes. I love their rowdiness. I love their, I, 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 in my opinion, there are two types of kids, ADHD and boring, okay? And so I, I love children, but there are three kids that are the special object of my affection. And can you guess who they are? They're Melinda's kids. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they're, they're my kids, right? So even though I wanna do good to all kids, the special object of my affection is to my children. In the same way Peter's, uh, Peter Paul, uh, one of those guys. He says, do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. The church should be the object of our good doing. The church is the place where we train and we learn how to do good to others. These commitments and these instructions are to be offered to all, but the church is the special object of our commitment, the special object of our commitment. Now, of course, it's easy to say that, but what does that mean practically? What is that? How do we do that? What are we talking about? Are we just talking about coming to church on Sunday? Uh, you know, having your own pew, right? I was actually visiting a church one time and I sat down in one of the front pews and I was sitting there kind of looking over my notes and I felt (laughs) on my shoulder and it hurt. (laughs) And uh, I looked up and there's this little sweet old lady. I I guess she was sweet, contrary to what I just experienced. And uh, she said, you're in my seat. She didn't know I was the pastor. She didn't know I was a visiting preacher, Yes, I did make it into the sermon. But anyway, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> is that what it means to be committed to the church? Well, especially not that, but, but attendance, yes. But it's not just that. It is that, but it's more, it's more. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. You know, oftentimes we, we take this verse and we take it to mean simply coming to church on Sunday. But when you look at that in the context, there's, there's actually more to it. The meeting together is, yes, it is the gathering of the church to worship and encourage one another. But it is more than that. It is more than that. We're not just talking about church attendance. What are we talking about? And, and Paul's gonna end this practical section with a couple of aspects of how we are to be committed to the community of faith. How do we commit ourselves to the community of faith? And really, we just got a couple of aspects here. So number one, what do we say? We say, well, first of all, we have to ask to what are we commit? To what are we committed? He says here in verse, in verse, uh, in verse nine, he goes back and says, let us not lose heart in doing good. Now, stop right there for a minute and let's look at what it means to do good. What are we talking about? Doing good here because it is good, like I said, not for reward, not for repayment. It's commended all throughout the scriptures. But what is it that we are to be committed to? What is it for a Christian to do good? What does that mean? Now, I think that all of us, this is one of those passages where if you just kind of read it by itself, you could insert anything you kind of want to in that, in, that, in that, right? You could define it any way you want to. But again, this passage is occurring in a context and we need to look at what does Paul have in mind whenever he says doing good. And I think what you have in mind here goes all the way back to Genesis, uh, Genesis, and goes all the way back to Galatians. Chapter five, verse 13, talking about, uh, walking in the spirit, not using our freedom as an opportunity for flesh through love, serving one another. And then he talks about being that harvest of the Holy Spirit, the, the fruit of the spirit and how this is what this produces. And so what does that mean practically? And we see that beginning in verse one. And we saw these last week. So I'm not going to give them, uh, I'm not going to give them all. Uh, if you want to, if you want to listen to last week's sermon, you'll hear a lot more detail on this. But anyway, basically, in verse one, we talk about restoring one another from sin. Right? We talked about that last week. In other words, bringing restoration and mercy to those who have fallen into sin for whatever reason. It's not our place to judge why they fell into sin. It's our place to restore them from that sin. Bearing one another's burdens, helping each other carry the weights and difficulties in their lives. We, we saw that in verses two and three. Examining ourselves and having a safe place like we talked about last week. The church is a safe place to where we can come and truly examine our own works, examine ourselves and, and measure ourselves against Christ and, and long for Christ-likeness and, and pursue Christ-likeness. The church gives us a safe place where we are free to to do that, make mistakes, all of those things, and grow in Christ. To see help growing and being real about ourselves, the church is a safe place to admit failure, all of those things. One thing we didn't talk about last week, though, was verse 6, sharing all things. Sharing all things. And Paul specifically in verse six says, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. I don't believe preaching verse by verse through the Bible is the only way to preach. I think it's the best way. Uh, but one of the disadvantages is that every now and then you run across a verse that can, uh, that can be rather awkward to preach can be rather awkward to teach. And, uh, and by the way, I'm not the only one who's feeling this awkwardness right now. Martin Luther, actually, of all people, talked about how awkward it was for him to write about this verse in his sermons. Um, this is pretty awkward, I admit. Seems a little self-serving, but hang with me. We're going we're gonna to take it other places. But the fact of the matter is Paul does say that the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Fact of the matter is that the scriptures do teach that the ones who labor hard at teaching and preaching is worthy of double honor. They are to be cared for by the church financially. Paul says the elders who labor hard at preaching and teaching, I've already said that, in fact, First Corinthians chapter nine, verses thirteen and fourteen, say this: They say that do you not know that those who are employed by the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial altar, uh, sacrificial offerings? And in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living in the gospel by the gospel. So this is a good and worthy principle. This is a good and worthy principle. Now, Paul did not take advantage of this; he uh, he waived this right. And there are some preachers who are able to do that today. I I know of one pastor who has made so much money off of his books that uh, he doesn't actually he his his church does not pay him a salary. He lives off the off the proceeds of his books and stuff like that, and he's able to do that. Uh, some pastors, you know, they save up enough for retirement, and then they they can go to a small and struggling church, and they can go a salary or something like that in order that they can help the church, that's a good. And by the way, beloved, I wish I could do that. I really do. I would love to not have to burden the church with a salary for me. Unfortunately, God has not done that. Maybe one day I'll win the lottery. No, I won't because I'm a Baptist, but Paul didn't take advantage of this. He chose not to, to be a hindrance, not to be a hindrance to the church. So so we can waive this, but the principle is sound. those who are taught the word is to share all good things with those who teach. You know, I know some churches today, their philosophy is, Lord, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. What an ungodly attitude toward your pastor. Amen? What an ungodly attitude. Selfish. Self centered. And by the way, most of those churches are dying for a reason. Now, I'm not saying these things to you as a point of conviction. I'm bringing this verse to you as a commendation of your faithfulness. Because Calvary Baptist Church, you are generous to me and my family. And I am so thankful. You give me a comfortable salary, you have allowed me and assisted me to finish my. Uh, Not my first, my second master's degree. You allow me to attend conferences. I'm going to a conference here in a few weeks and you're allowing me time off to do that. And by the way, when I do those things, those things that are invested in me, I come back and I invest those things in you. That's what Paul is saying here, that do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that who also reap. When, When you sow those things into me, I come back and I invest those things into you it's not rocket science. So Calvary Baptist Church, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for all you do for me and my family. And anyone who's listening to this sermon on a recording online, if you're a member of a church that abuses your pastor in this way, stop it. If you wanna have a shot at having a kingdom healthy church, you better stop that. Amen. Amen. So, really, at issue here is the personal stake in the church, that that personal ownership, not in the sense that it is your church, it is Christ's church, not in the sense that you're holding it together. That's a that's an ungodly and selfish attitude. We're not talking about that. But on the other hand, you have a personal investment in the ministry, in the welfare, and in the future of the church. And just again, can I commend your faithfulness, beloved? We had a we had a meeting not too long ago with the with the deacons, and one of the things we are able to celebrate is that our church has been financially on solid ground all during the coronavirus pandemic. And beloved, that is a testament to you. And by the way, you deserve a hand for that. Give yourself an applause for that because that is wonderful. Go ahead, you can do it. I know we're bad, but clap your hands. It's okay. <laughs> That, that, is, that is wonderful. You guys have done amazing with that. You have a personal stake in the welfare of this church and the future of this church. And that's wonderful. Keep up the good work and do even more. But let me take this a different direction here because the most obvious application is to the pastor, the one who teaches. The most obvious application is to see to physical needs, which you do that very well, but beloved, I'm not the only one who teaches in the church. Let's just, uh, let's just talk about Sunday school teachers for a moment. How are we to share all good things with them? You know one of the greatest gifts you can share with your Sunday school teacher? Your time. Your time. Be there. Commit to it. Be a part of it. Our teachers will tell you that it is so discouraging and so demoralizing to work so hard to prepare a lesson, and then then nobody bothers to show up for it. I have talked with Sunday school teachers that have literally been in tears, thinking they are the worst teachers in the world. That they just want to—they just want to drop out. They want to quit. They're so discouraged. And then later that week I, I talked to one of their students and their students It's like now they're they're a great teacher I, I love their teaching. why would they think they're such a bad teacher because you don't come Amen? You have no idea how discouraging that is and so beloved, the best and most precious gift you can give and yes, I did just stomp my foot like a like a like a temper tantrum. (laughs) But the best gift you can give to your teachers is your time, your priority. When you treat church, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys have been here throughout this whole pandemic to to even the the risk of your own health. I I get that, and I I love you for that, but there's others who are gonna be listening to this recording, and listen, there is... There is nothing so discouraging as someone who's putting themselves out there. And people treat it like it's, you know, they'll come only if there is absolutely nothing else going on. Don't do that. Invest in your church. Be committed. Sunday school teachers, does that capture your heart? In fact, you know, one great thing might be after church today is just walk up to your teacher and tell them how much you appreciate them. Go up to them and tell them how hard, you know how hard they work. Keep your distance, of course, but tell them how hard you work. Give them that gift. I think that would be, in lieu of of an altar call today, I think that would be a wonderful thing for us to do, just to walk up to one another and tell them how much you appreciate your teachers. What a wonderful sharing gift you can give. Amen? And if they're not attending, call them and let them know. So I got a little uh, carried away with that. So let's look at verses seven and eight. We saw what we are to commit to, to doing good. But why? Why are we to commit? Verses seven and eight. I hear these verses preached all the time, but rarely in context. And it causes some unfortunately, unfortunate conclusions. He says in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I hear these verses all the time. Uh, for, for example, if you watch uh, TBN, you're going to hear preachers who, or uh, and I use that word very loosely, but you're going to hear teachers on that channel who's going to tell you to sow a $1,000 seed and you can break the back of poverty for a $1,000 seed and that kind of nonsense. Now, I hope by now I've convinced you guys not to watch TBN. I, I hope I've done that. Yeah, there's a couple of good preachers on there, but quite frankly, I wouldn't go within 50 miles of that channel. And those good preachers, you can watch them somewhere else most of the time. And so stay away from that channel. Don't give them any ratings. They talk about stuff like that. That is a heretical, that is an abusive doctrine that is, that is fleecing God's people. But you know, sometimes we can do the same thing. We often treat this verse like kind of like Christian karma. That if I do good things, good things will happen to me. You know, uh, it it worked for my name is Earl. So it should work for me too, right? If I do good things, good things will happen. And oftentimes that's how I hear this verse preached. But again, let's look at the context. What's Paul talking about here? And so number one, let's look at verse seven. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What does this mean? To deceive to mock God means to it literally means to turn your nose to God or to scoff at Him. In other words, to think that we've outsmarted God. You know the ones who mocked Jesus on the cross. What? Well, why are they mocking Him? They're mocking Him because there Jesus is on the cross, and the teachers think that they have outmaneuvered Him. You know, there he is, he's dying, we've won, and now they're mocking him, you know. uh, You know, take yourself down from that cross, you who were gonna build the temple in three days. Look at you now, you know. They thought they had outwitted him. They thought they had outsmarted him. That's what it means to mock God. When, uh, When my kids and I play checkers, sometimes I'll let them jump me and they will. Unbeknownst to them, that jump just set up a three checker jump, a triple jump for me. And then I mocked them for it <laughs> because I outsmarted them, right? Little unfair, I don't care. So it's the way of the world, they need to learn early. So no, partition, no participation awards and checkers in our house. We think we're outsmarting God. But here's the thing, do not be deceived. You will not outsmart God. You will not outwit God. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. So that's the principle. Let's look at the application just very quickly. Verse eight. For the ones who sow to his own flesh will from the flesh weep corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what are we talking about here? Those who sow to the flesh. Now again, when we read this verse out of context... We could kind of supply whatever we want to there, right? We can talk about things that like going to movies or listening to certain kind of music or or stuff like that. And that may certainly apply depending on what it is. But again, let's look at how Paul is using this term. What does he mean to sow to the flesh? Well, he's already talked about the flesh, hasn't he? He's talked about the flesh in chapter five. And the question is, how do we sow to the flesh in chapter five and verses 19 through 21? He said, the deeds of the flesh are evident in morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. You see, we sow to the flesh when we do the deeds of the flesh in order to obtain the desires of the flesh. And when we do that, we will reap Corruption. Whether we do it in the church, whether we do it at home, whether we do it at work, whether we do it in our lives, whatever it is, we will reap corruption when we do the deeds of the flesh, sowing to the flesh. We reap corruption. We reap, even when we get our desires, they are tainted by our fleshly works, tainted by our flesh, tainted by our sin. Even when we get what we want, And so we sow corruption. Do not think you can sow to the flesh in the church and be a godly church. Do not think you can compartmentalize your life. I'm a Christian on Sunday and then the rest of the week I'm whatever I want to be. In psychology, that's called compartmentalization. In the Bible, that's called sowing to the flesh. And don't think that you can sow to the flesh and reap eternal life. You can't do it. Now, what about those who sow to the Spirit? What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? Again, we see this in verses one through six. It's talking about doing good, sowing to the Spirit, doing good. That's talking about the same things. Paul's using a metaphor here. To, to bring out this, this idea that when we are sowing to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to earn eternal life. Christ has done that for us in the crucifixion. He has done that for us in his perfect life, and his righteousness applied to us. That's the only way that we can have eternal life. But eternal life is not just life in heaven for eternity. It is a certain kind of life. It is a certain quality of life. And the more we sow to the spirit, the more we will recognize and reap the benefits of our eternal life now. In other words, what will we reap? We will reap the fruit of the spirit in chapter five, that Christ likeness, that model of Christian maturity that Paul has given us in chapter five. We're not just talking about going to heaven. But we're talking about living in light of heaven now. And experiencing the joy and the peace that Jesus promises. He says, my joy I give to you. These things I tell you so that your joy may be full, that you may have life and have it more abundantly. These are all promises that can be recognized now, realized now, not in their fullest extent. No, that's going to be in heaven. But we can have some of it now. And as we sow to the Spirit, the Spirit will produce a harvest of Christ-likeness that will progressively make us more and more like Jesus Christ, characterized by the fruits of the Spirit. You see how all these passages are connected together? You see how they're all pointing back to one another? We did a series on the deity of Christ a while back, and after Galatians, I've decided to do a series on the Holy Spirit, talking about him and how he works and how to recognize spiritual gifts and what are not spiritual gifts today. But just a preview, let me, let me just tell you this, and I've said this before. Beloved, when you are filled with the Spirit, when you are truly Spirit-filled, regardless of what you see on YouTube, you don't act like an animal. And you don't, lie, you don't act like someone who's demon-possessed, passing out and flipping around and Acting like your withdrawals. And I'll go ahead and say this you don't speak in gibberish. Beloved, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you act like Jesus Christ. You do the things that Jesus does, your life points to Him. And just like Jesus, you do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Make no mistake. Do not be deceived. Oh, beloved. Oh, Christian, how many Christians are walking around today, walking about being deceived. They're thinking that they can outsmart God, sowing over and over and over again to the flesh and think that just because they give God a passing glance, every now and then, they are reaping eternal life. They are deceived You cannot sow to the flesh over and over, day in and day out, and think that you are reaping eternal life. You will not outsmart God. You will not outwit him. You will not trick him. But you can surrender to him. You can repent to him. You can trust him for your eternal life. Beloved, you can have all the promises of faith, all the promises that he offers you, you can have. Stop trying to outsmart God and instead trust in his provision for you. Jesus died on the cross. He came, he lived a perfect, sinless life. Earning the righteousness that you and I never could. And then he died on the cross to take the penalty of our sins so that you and I can be forgiven. And then he rose on the third day to show that God was satisfied with his payment, that our sins were indeed forgiven but also to give us power to walk in the newness of our salvation. Beloved, salvation's not just eternal life. It is that, but it's more. It's a Christ-like life. It's Christ life. I don't have the power to change myself. I don't have the power to turn over a new leaf, but Christ does. And he invites all of us to Repent to trust in him, you will not outsmart God. But if you're willing to repent and trust in Christ as your eternal savior, God will save you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do we believe that? Amen. Amen. So why aren't we trying to outsmart him? Let's live for him be committed to one another, doing good, sowing to the spirit so that we will have that eternal life quality of life in our church and around. Father, we thank you for these principles you've given us. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who does not know you as Savior, Lord, I pray something was said or done today that they will come to understand how much they need you. Lord, if there's one here that does not have eternal salvation, I pray that they would surrender their lives to you and repent of their sins and trust you. And Lord, for those of us how often we sow to this flesh, Lord, give us a renewed commitment, commitment to the church, commitment to you and to one another to do good, to bear with one another, to restore one another, to help one another walk in Christ's likeness, to be there for one another. Surround one another with love and gentleness, kindness. Lord, to invest in eternity, treasures in heaven. Lord, I pray that Calvary Baptist Church will be the church. We will not just be a group of people who like to have worship services. But we will be the church. And we can only do that through your power. So help me, Lord, to model that. Help our leaders model that, our Sunday school teachers model that. Lord, may we truly be Christ for one another. Let's sing this song together, this wonderful prayer. Very simple, very well known. Let's stand together.